Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining me on our Wednesday night pastor's Bible study. I tell you, I completed a series earlier in the year, and then Pastor Corey got started on his series, and with all of our pandemic trouble, it's been kind of stop and go and hit and miss, but hopefully we're back on track, and um, I appreciate Pastor Justin taking a few weeks while I was down and uh, doing some great teaching, and I want to begin tonight uh, a new series. Um, this should take us through close to the holidays in the fall, and um, it's The Life of Moses, and the subtitle is Discovering God's Hand and God's Heart. Now, there's a reason for that. It's not just a biological uh, study or biographical, I should say, study about Moses. We're not just trying to look at his, uh, the events of his life. It's a quest that Moses was on. Few people, few people had the kind of passionate zeal to know the Lord. There was a handful, perhaps, but few people wanted to not only serve God, but to know God, to know God the way that Moses wanted to know God. We're going to deal with it on a Wednesday night when we get a little further down the road. But the scripture says that the most meek man on the face of the earth was the appellation given to, to Moses. Meek was a very powerful, uh, it's a strong word, in the world of discipleship and knowing God. What does it mean to be meek? We'll talk about it. We think of Jesus. He said, uh, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly of heart. Um, meek has the idea of a service and uh, a selflessness that makes for a powerful combination that we see in the life of Jesus, of course, but we also see it in the life of Moses. So Moses is going to be on a quest not only to know the actions of God, not only to know God's work, but to know God's ways. And in other words, not just the hand of God, but the heart of God as well. Um, I know that a lot of Bible teachers, and I understand what they're trying to do and I understand what they're saying, and I don't disagree with it. Jesus Christ is the most perfect representation of the Father that is possible because they are one. But I, I want us to be careful that we don't think Jesus came to represent the Father because Father needed help with his public relations. Jesus did not come because we needed a, a God 2.0. Jesus was just the most accurate representation of the Father. But if you really want to know the heart of God, you don't have to go to the New Testament. I mean, he is described in such phenomenal terms in the Old Testament, uh, his compassion as a father, his care as a mother, the God who loved without restraint and without condition. No, I, I'll, I'll stick by my guns on this. You don't have to have the New Testament uh, 
to understand the love and the care of the God of the Old Testament. They complement each other, but Moses said, I want to know you. I want to see you. I want to comprehend not only what you have done, but who you are. And that's going to be the foundation we use as we follow this wonderful time uh, in the life of Moses. Now, to understand God's hand and God's heart, we begin by understanding what Israel was up against. Um, it's an easy analogy to make. It's a biblical analogy to make when we think of Israel in slavery and bondage, serving Pharaoh, having lost their freedom. That's a picture of our lives. We were servants. We were slaves. We were in bondage to sin. Uh, just as the children of Israel were in bondage to Pharaoh. Uh, and when we begin this beautiful story in Exodus, we see that Israel is calling out to God. Now we finished the life of Abraham just a while back, and we understood a little bit about the promise that Israel received from the Lord and how that promise came about. Um, the, the covenant came through Abraham. The, the setting for this great thing came through Abraham and, and uh, Isaac and Jacob and, and um, the, the story of Joseph. It's a beautiful story. But by the time we get to Gen or, uh, excuse me, Exodus 1, Israel has lost her freedom. She's in bondage and she begins to cry out to the Lord. So tonight, we want to take a little bit of time to understand what they were up against, what had been forgotten, and what God was bringing back to the table. This idea of the cry of Israel, Father, open our hearts and help us to understand the power, the power that occurs when a man, woman, boy, or girl cries out to God, the God who hears us. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name. There are some verses that I think are, are so powerful. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 3, 4, these are all in your outline. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. One of my favorite psalms. Um, just, just the empathy that it portrays. Psalm 34, 6. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. I guess the first time I ever heard that um, verse preached upon was the president of Southeastern Bible College in those days, Cyril Homer. He had come to my hometown and was preaching, and he gave a testimony of uh, his miraculous deliverance. He was an army chaplain in the South Pacific in World War II, and he was cut off from his unit. And it was, a, it was a, an amazing story. And he summed up the story using this verse, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Ever since that day, way back in 1973, that verse has been something that is near and dear to me. You can go to Psalm 69.3, and the psalmist said, I am worn out, calling for help. 
My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Psalm 88, 9. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Psalm 119, 46. I call out to you, save me, and I will keep your statutes. And then Psalm 81 again, verse 7. In your distress, God said, you called and I rescued you. I answered you out of a thundercloud. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. It's part and parcel of our experience with God that we call out to him. I encourage you to do a devotion sometime. Actually, it'll take you more than, a, than one day, but maybe one week. Look up the passages where the people of God call out to him and how the Lord answers um, and, and comes to their rescue. It's just such a beautiful, beautiful motive, um, uh, uh, motif, I should say, in the, in the word of God. Exodus 1.23 is where we're going to read tonight from Exodus 1 and from Exodus 3. And then we're going to put a little bit of uh, flesh on the bones of this introduction to Israel. Now, <clears throat> the word says during that long period, the king of Egypt died. Now that long period, this is the time between the death of Joseph and the appearance of Moses. Um, it was several hundred years uh, between the time they actually got into the land and uh, the time that they had received a promise, Abraham had received a promise, it was going to be, uh, it was going to be about 400 years. But Jacob uh, has died, Joseph has died, and Israel has slipped from the favored status of the guests of Pharaoh to people that were now slaves working the land for the government. That's the long period. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help, there's that cry again, because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now, this gives us a little further background. Then a new king, this is verse 8 to 14, to whom Joseph meant nothing. King James, I think, says, who knew not Joseph. A new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people. The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave this country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pitham and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. I like the way Ken Taylor put it in the New Living Translation. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. 
Boy, that is a place we could just stop and have a lesson in and of itself. That's your DNA. That's my DNA. That's what we are made of uh, as we're made in the image of God and become his children. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and, and grew. Okay, um, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now, we need to understand something about the nature of man. Work is not a curse. Um, we, we realize that when Adam fell, something happened to the concept of this thing called work. Work was part of the original creation. Work was part of God's perfect plan. And when things are the way they ought to be, we can delight in work. We can delight in work. Now we need a break from it. That was part of the reason for the Sabbath. We're not created to work, but we are created with work as part of our existence. And it was beautiful until man sinned. Now, you say, well, work was before, then how did sin affect it? When man sinned, he would continue to work, but this was the difference. Now, instead of the land working with him, now it says you will work by the sweat of your brow, by extra effort and toil and difficulty. By that, work will produce only a portion of what it was meant to produce. So work went from being a perfect plan of God that was a delight to a chore and a bothersome thing that worked against us as often as it worked for us. And when man's evil nature extends itself further and makes work oppressive, it can actually become slavery. So the problem isn't that the children of Israel were working. The problem is that they were slaves now. They had been reduced from what God intended to something that the devil had devised. Okay, slavery is the domain of the wicked one. So the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Exodus 3 goes into a little more detail. It says, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, he's talking about Moses. Now, I'm going from here to here rather quickly tonight. Um, Moses was born into this adversity. We'll talk about his story beginning next week and how he got from chapter one to chapter three. But when Moses fled Egypt and fled um, uh, arrest that was pending because he had murdered an Egyptian trying to take care of, of his Hebrew brothers. Uh, he is now out in the wilderness. He's a, he's a shepherd himself. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look at a burning bush that was on fire but was not consumed, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. 
Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. When God introduced himself, he not only introduced himself as the God of the great patriarch, Abraham, and his sons, Isaac, and then Jacob. But he also says, I'm the God of your father. That tells us something beautiful. It tells us uh, a little bit of the story from Hebrews 11 that Moses' father, Amram, and his mother, Jochebed, even though they had Moses for only a short period of time, they lived their life in such a way. It was God saying, I'm not only the God of Abraham, but the God that your mama and daddy used to talk to you about. I am that God. I am the God that you have been told about from your earliest days. And um, uh, at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, the Jebusites. These were just some of the enemies that Israel was going to conquer. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, Moses, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? Well, we're going to read his story beginning next week, but I think it's good for us to pause here just a moment and observe what a great preacher said one time. He said, Moses spent 40 years as Egyptian royalty learning that he was a somebody. Then God sends him into the wilderness for another 40 years to learn that in reality, he was a nobody. See, he, he had to learn, first of all, this is who I am, or at least that's what he thought. Then, just as important a message was, I'm not who I thought I was. I am a nobody. But praise God, the story doesn't end there. There's a third period of 40 years where Moses leads Egypt, and this is the way the preacher put it. He spent 40 years learning he was somebody. Then he spent 40 years learning he was a nobody. And the last 40 years of his life, he became a somebody who learned what God could do with a nobody, with a nobody. And God was about to do something phenomenal through, uh, through uh, the life of, of Moses. Now, Let's set the stage a little bit. We want to talk about two things tonight just to set the stage. Number one, we want to talk about the problem Israel faced. 
To understand what God did, we need to understand what they were up against. And we've got to understand how hopeless their situation seemed. The second thing that we want to do is not only see the problem that Israel faced, but we want to see the response that God showed. Now, don't be discouraged. I know what some of you are thinking, because I've thought it too myself. Boy, I wish God was working for me. I wish God would hear me and come down and get involved in my life. Well, he came to Moses and said, I've heard, I've listened, and I've come down. I don't know if you've ever thought about it or not, but God said, I'm hearing, and I'm going to do something. I have come down. But it's almost like God needed a GPS. He landed in the desert hundreds of miles from where Egypt was imposing its grief on Israel. You know, a lot of times we say, God, why don't you do something? God, why don't you come down? God, why don't you hear me? And the fact of the matter is, he is indeed doing all of that. But it's just out of our sight. It's just out of the reach of our senses. And God, I tell you, God works long before we realize he's working. Let's look at their problem. Here's the problem they face. Number one, so much hinged on Joseph, but Joseph, here's number one, was a forgotten man. It says in the King James that a Pharaoh came to power who knew not Joseph. The, um, uh, the translation we read from NIV says, um, uh, oh, let me find it here. There was a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. You see, when you have made a deal because of someone's life, but that person's life is forgotten, I, I know what it's like. You do too, probably, to be on vacation somewhere and to go to some historical monument, and you know about the man, you know about the monument, and, uh, but you find yourself surrounded by people that don't understand. I remember Joey and I went to the Truman House and uh, the Truman Presidential Library in uh, Independence, Missouri. And Truman was one of my favorite presidents. I really loved him and had talked to Joey about him. Joey was a little guy, but he had become a bit of a Truman fan himself. And we were in awe of what we were seeing. And I will never forget somebody that was, oh, I don't know, 16, 17 years old, was bored stiff. The, the tour guide wasn't, you know, connecting with this guy. And he just kind of looked around and said, who is this true man anyway? Who is this true man? And I thought, you don't even know how to pronounce his name. Here's a man that shaped America in the middle of the 20th century in ways that are worth book after book after book being written. And you don't even know how to pronounce his name. That's what they were up against. All of the favor that Israel was going to need was hinged upon and connected to a man named Joseph. But Joseph had been forgotten. Joseph had been forgotten. You know, there's an old saying. Uh, um, it says, never tear down a fence without learning why the fence was there. And most fences are up for a reason. 
most people of notoriety are figures on the horizon for a reason. So you should never discount them. You should never discount them without understanding why they are prominent on the landscape of history. That's the way it was with Joseph. Um, there was a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power. Joseph was just a blur from the past. So they had a forgotten man. There also was a problem in that there had been a forgotten promise. This was the promise given in Genesis 15, verses 13 to 14. This is God speaking to Abraham. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Now, you read that in Genesis, and you want to say, and you remember we talked about this when we were studying Abraham. God said, Abraham, there's going to be some dark days ahead, but hold steady because I am making a promise. They will come out of that land with great possessions, even though they go through a time of slavery. Well, just about everybody had forgotten that. Not everybody, but just about everybody had forgotten this great promise. So they had forgotten, or the enemy had forgotten who Joseph was. And the people of God, because of their heaviness and their oppression, were beginning to forget the promise that was made to Abraham and to Joseph. So many times circumstances can make us forget promises that were made. And, and there's a, a, a third thing that was forgotten. It was a forgotten covenant. God said, I'm not just making a promise to you, Abraham. I am making a covenant between you and your offspring. And a promise is one thing. Well, with God, there is no difference between a promise and a covenant. But someone might make a promise saying, yeah, I promise you I'll take you to the movies tomorrow night. But something can come up and something can change that. But a covenant was a horse of a different color. A covenant was a solemn agreement where both parties made a vow, a promise that by everything that they were, by everything that they were, they will keep an agreement to one another. It was executed or put into effect by the sacrifice of an animal sometimes birds, sometimes a, a bull or a goat or a, a sheep, something like that. But what would happen, this is an oversimplification, but what would happen is the sacrificial animal or animals would be cut into pieces, cut into pieces, and then laid out along the ground. And the two covenant makers, person A and person B, would walk toward each other in the shape of a, of a figure eight walking in and out of the cut pieces of animal. It was called to cut covenant or sometimes to walk out covenant. And they would walk from one end to the other. And that covenant was saying this, 
this is what I promised to do for you. And this is what you promised to do for me. And if we don't keep our end of the deal, may we be destroyed and cut into pieces just as these animals are. And they would walk among them, uh, the pieces of the animal making covenant with each other. And when God made covenant with Abraham, God did something that was so powerful, it's often overlooked. Abraham prepared the animals, he slaughtered the animals, he laid them out and waited for God to show up so that he and God could walk in a figure eight together and cut covenant. But when God came, he did not let Moses get up off the ground and walk the covenant, but God did it himself. And that was God's way of saying, I am not only making a covenant with you, I want you to know, uh, uh, Abraham, that even if you don't fulfill your part of the covenant, I will fulfill my part of the covenant. Now, there were covenants God would make with Israel that depended on their obedience. There were covenants that God would make with Israel that if you do this, I'll do this. But this covenant to bless them and preserve them and, and the ultimate destiny of Israel, God said, I will be faithful even if you are not faithful. And that covenant had been forgotten. The covenant had been forgotten. With the passing of time, God was blessing Israel and the blessing was so profound that the people of Egypt were fearful. They said they're getting too big. They're, 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 they're not manageable. And um, when people become fearful of another people, they inevitably fall into traps of hatred and violence and mistreatment. And that's what they began to do. A typical pattern is this. The people that you fear, you typically begin to marginalize them, to, to say they don't really matter. Then you move from marginalization to blame. You're the reason that our society has these ills or these pr problems. And the third step is persecution. I think that is what we're in danger of seeing come to pass in America toward the church. We're not there yet. But we're headed down a path that unless the Lord helps us, Christians have already been marginalized. You say, oh, pastor, that's just, that's just right-wing propaganda. No, if you know history, you know that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in the early days was the conscience of a nation. We, we weren't a Christian nation in the sense that everybody was a Christian and everybody obeyed the law of God. But the law of the land was based on the Judeo-Christian ethic. You, you can't deny that, uh, not, not successfully. Um, there was a time when we became a nation that nearly 70% of Americans were in a worship service on a Sunday. Uh, it's down to something like uh, 4% now. But there was a time when the, the Christians were seen clearly as the foundation pillars of the nation. Um, you, you would read the newspaper that was printed on a Monday morning and several pages were given 
to a recap and a summary of the sermons that had been preached all over town. Politicians wanted to know what do the people of God think about this treaty or this action. We were not perfect. We were far from perfect, but we were the conscience of a nation. Well, with the passing of time, Christians have become marginalized. It's it's you don't matter. You, it's just your opinion. And we're entering a phase now where we're not only marginalized, but we're often blamed for whatever ill is coming upon society. Now, if it's the Christian's if they weren't responsible for this or that, we wouldn't have these problems. Like Nero, who blamed the Christians for the fires of Rome when the Christians had nothing to do with it. We are, we are flirting right now with a culture that has already marginalized Christians and is now beginning to blame Christians for the problems of the nation. The next logical step is persecution. And hopefully we can humble ourselves before God and things can change before it goes in that direction. But Israel had gone from being honored guests to, hey, you know what? We've got enemies and enemies can be helped by them. So we're going to marginalize them. We're going to blame them. And now we're going to make them slaves. That's what had happened to them. So there had been a forgotten covenant. They had, they had forgotten the man, they had forgotten the promise, and the covenant had been forgotten. But God doesn't forget those things, even though we do. So that leads us to the second thing I want to mention just real quickly. What did God do? When, when people are forgotten, when a promise is lost, when a covenant is ignored, in connection with the people of God. What does God do? What is his typical response? Well, he said three things. Here they are. Number one, he said, I have heard. I have heard. They called out and God said, I have heard. The second thing that happened, God said, I have seen. I have seen. The third thing that happened he said, I have come down. There comes a time when God hears the cry of his people and sees the wickedness that has been visited upon them. And God says, if you'll keep calling, the day will come when I will respond. The scripture puts it this way in the New Testament. When we draw near to God, God draws near to us. I love when the angel announced the name of Jesus. He, he said to Mary and, and to Joseph, he said, his name shall be called Jesus, which means Savior, because he will save the people from their sin. But the angel said something else sounded contradictory. He said, he shall be called Emmanuel. Now that wasn't his name. I mean, his middle name, it wasn't Jesus, Emmanuel, you know, son of Joseph. He said, but he will be called Emmanuel which means God with us. And the reason that was so important is that for the better part of 400 years, not quite, but the better part of 400 years, Israel had lived on voices from the past. 
There were men and women of God. There were no doubt prophets during that period that were reminding them of God's promise. But there was no what we call canonical prophet, no writing prophets. Malachi was the last one. There was no Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel to remind the people of God of the promises of God. They were living on voices of the past. And in the theology of the intertestamental period, God was there. The problem is he just wasn't here. Oh, there were times that he might have showed up or there were times that his spirit might have empowered someone like the Maccabees or somebody else. But the problem is that God was up there, but they needed a God that was here. It's like the little boy that got scared during a thunderstorm and he ran into his mom and daddy's room and he said that I... Uh, Mama, Daddy, I'm frightened. And they tried to assure him and comfort him saying, you know that God is with you. Even during a bad storm, God is with you. And the little boy put so much of what we feel into words pretty well. He said, yes, I know God is with me, but I need someone with skin on. And God said, I'm going to come down. I'm going to put someone near you with skin on. Now the ultimate uh, manifestation of that was the coming of Jesus later. But Moses was going to be a prophet like they had been without for a long, long time. He was going to be someone with skin on. God was going to come down and he says, I'm going to raise up a deliverer. I'm going to raise up a deliverer. Now that's the beginning they had a wonderful backstory with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, Jacob's sons, especially Joseph. They were the favored guests in Egypt, but with the passing of time, the, the person that they loved had been forgotten, the promise had been forgotten, the covenant had been forgotten. And it looked like everything God had given to them was going to be taken away or never come to fulfillment. Then God says, after nearly 400 years, those prayers you thought I didn't hear, I've heard them. The days that you've struggled wishing somebody would look upon me and see what I'm dealing with, I've seen it. And now I've come down to help. Now, we're going to go on a beautiful journey together with Moses, learning about God's hand and God's heart. But what do we want to take away between lesson one and lesson two? Next, next week, we're going to take a few steps back and we're going to go to the birth of Moses. And we're going to talk about the faith of his family and the circumstances surrounding his arrival in Egypt. But what lessons do we take with us to get us from here to there? What do we remember until God begins to show up with the solution to our problems? Three things, I think. Here's number one. Hard times don't hinder the promises God made to you. There may be a situation that you're facing that your tendency is to think, well, God made that promise, but that was in a good time. Maybe I was a better person then. 
I know I, I spoke to someone one time and I said, if God made this promise to you, God's going to keep the promise. And he had lived a rough life. He says, but I was a, I was a nicer guy then. My heart was more tender then. Um, my hard heart, God's probably changed his mind. But loved ones, I want you to know that hard hearts or hard times don't hinder the promises that God made to you. I remember a friend of mine that uh, was one of my youth when I was uh, uh, a youth and children's pastor back years ago. And he had no real interest in God that I could see. At the same time, I knew he'd been raised right. I knew he'd been brought up in church, but he just went out of his way to try to not make room for God in his life. He came to me one night and he, he was so excited. He said, I've gave my heart uh, or, or rededicated my life to Jesus last night. I said, wonderful. Tell me about it. He said, I was worried about something. And God said, I remember a conversation we had way back when you were in middle school. This is what you said. And this is what I promised. He said, I spoke to God and said, I had forgotten that. And he looked at me and tears began to fill his eyes. And he said, God spoke to me. He said, first time God's ever spoken to me uh, in, in, my, in my high school years. And I said, what did he say? He said, I told him that I had forgotten that. And God spoke to me and said, I've never forgotten it. I remember it. Even if we forget, God does not. He would say in chapter 1, about verse 24 or so, he would say, I have remembered. I have remembered. So loved ones, please let me assure you, even if you are facing hard times and hard problems, that does not negate the promises that God made to you earlier. In fact, sometimes God makes a promise to you earlier because he knows that you're going to need that promise to be real in your heart later. Okay, so number one, hard times don't hinder the promises God made to you. Here's the second thing I want you to remember. Harsh treatment, harsh treatment does not go unnoticed. Harsh treatment does not go unnoticed. And I want to tell you, we're going through the COVID pandemic right now, and I, I, I'm having some heartbreaking conversations with people. And we, we're, all, we're all in a mess right now. We're all struggling, not only for spiritual health, but for mental health, financial health, and whatever else. The toughest trials are those in which we feel forgotten and forsaken. And if I've heard it once, I've heard it three dozen times. Pastor, it's so hard because I feel forgotten and I feel forsaken. Usually when I have a problem, I just work through it and God helps me and we move on. But he says, this has been going on for months and it's just, it's just eviscerating and it's suffocating. And I feel so forgotten and I feel so forsaken. <coughs> but God wants you to understand 
that the harsh treatment that life sometimes gives us, the harsh treatment that sometimes people give us, doesn't go unnoticed. Um, may, it's been said that man can live for more than 30 days without food, for about three days without water, and about three minutes without hope. I know that that's not exactly true. We can live with it for longer than three minutes. But the point this person was trying to make is tough times are so exasperating when we feel forgotten and forsaken. <coughs> Excuse me, but these tough times, this harsh treatment does not go unnoticed by God. Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, wrote the Gulag uh, Archipelago, a, a book um, several decades ago. It was about his persecution in the prisons of Russia. And he talked about how he was off in this gulag. No, his family didn't even know where he was. And regularly, systematically, he was beaten. He said, and it was, it was, a, it was a, a waking nightmare. He would hear the steps of his tormentor come walking down the hall day after day. He knew the gate. He knew the steps that his tormentor um, w would take. And he said, I would be tortured to the breaking point. And he said, every day I heard these horrible steps coming he said, I began to call out to God. He said, and these horrible steps would come. But he said, after a while, something else began to happen. He said, after a while, when the torture was over, I would hear new steps. I would hear the gait of someone else walking down the hall. And he said that the very presence of God would come to me in that place of torment and would comfort me. And basically, I knew that he could have stopped it. I knew that he could have removed me from the gulag as easily as anything. But he said, my comfort was that he told me that I know what you're going through. I know what you're going through. Be faithful and I'll give you the crown of life. And um, Solzhenitsyn says, harsh treatment does not go unnoticed. Now, here's the last thing. Heavy tests are survivable. This is the part that stinks. I probably should have done this first so we could have ended on something different. But heavy tests are survivable. God gives us mercy and grace. And the Christian life operates off mercy and grace. See, mercy is not getting what I do deserve. God shows me mercy and I don't get what I deserve. But grace is me getting what I don't deserve. Okay, Mercy says you deserve this, but I'll hold it back. Grace says you don't deserve this, but I'll give it to you anyway. See, grace, we know it as God's good will toward us. We call it unmerited favor. And that's, that's part of grace. God's unmerited favor toward us. We've done nothing to deserve it. But God doesn't just have a good will toward us. He has good work within us. 
within us. Now the day is coming when the Red Sea is going to be parted. The day is coming when they'll get water from the rock and food from heaven. Unbelievable miracles are going to occur. But right now in the toughest of tough places, when Joseph had been forgotten and promises had been forgotten and covenant had been forgotten, God is saying to you, I'm hearing you, I'm seeing you, I'm going to come down to you. And remember, hard times do not negate the promise that I made. Harsh treatment does not go unnoticed. And the heaviest test is survivable. That'll get us to next week. Father, in the name of Jesus, bless my brothers and sisters. I pray for your grace to cover us. I pray for your mercy to run through our lives in abundance, Father. Surely goodness and mercy, surely loving kindness and grace will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. Help us like Moses to learn something of your hand and especially of your heart. Help us to know your ways. Help us to know your work. And help us to love you in the way you deserve to be loved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here tonight.